Listen to the word of the Lord, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 and following. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Verse 14, Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to my support but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth And the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Second Timothy chapter four, nine through 18. He says, please hurry and come quickly because Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Crescens went to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Alexander, the metal worker, did me great harm. Be careful. The Lord will repay him. How do you like them apples? That's, that's, that's intense stuff. I think sometimes we in the church... Don't, don't understand things in light of Jesus, in light of the judgment that is to come. I think sometimes we have this fairy tale grace thing. God's this sweet little cute Santa Claus in the sky, not the one coming on the clouds to dispense justice and truth. And we are those who've been redeemed to live in the fear and reverence and obedience of the Lord and to take the short amount of time we have left and to do God's will. And so he's going, man, the Lord's going to deal with Alexander. And then, verse 16, at my first defense, so he's in a trial, he's been opposed, he's gone through hard things. I get the impression Alexander did him physical harm. I get the impression Alexander beat him down hard and hurt him physically, not just emotionally. That it was a full package resistance of the gospel. I hate your message. I'm going to work against you. I'm going to physically beat you up. I hate you. That, That kind of a guy. At my first defense, right? He's in a public defense for because that's what that's what happens. There's a legal attack on the Christian church with, with the spread of the gospel. No one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Oof. May it not be held against them. The fact that Paul's praying, may it not be held against them, means he thinks it's a condemnable sin. 
that his friends, his brothers, were not loyal to him in his time of need. A condemnable offense that they betrayed and denied him and saved their own skins and ran away from the hard thing. That to be his friend, to be loyal to him, a man, would have cost them. So they ran. And Paul doesn't even pull punches. Demas, in love with this present world, left me. That's intense stuff. He's praying forgiveness on them, his friends, praying forgiveness on them. But the fact that he's praying forgiveness on them, it's Christian forgiveness. Christian forgiveness is condemning the wrong that was done. Clearly, clearly condemning the wrong that was done. And then handing our right to punish over to Jesus and handing our right to withhold love over to Jesus. It's not sweeping under the rug. It's not saying it's fine. It's no big deal. It's not biting our lip and holding our tongue. It's not ignoring it. It's not holding it in. It's not holding back. It's not excusing it. Forgiveness is not excusing it. It's condemning it and then handing the person and the offense over to Jesus to be the judge and giving up my right to withhold love. In other words, Christian forgiveness does not blur the lines of truth in any way. But, and this is the meat of the passage, they deserted me, everyone left me. In my hour of need, the humans all failed me. But verse 17. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Psychologists define the five major core emotional needs of every human in our development. Something like this. Number one, every human has a deep need for a secure emotional attachment. Usually that comes with our primary caregivers, our mom and our dad. Usually. Second, a need for autonomy. We have a need to be able to try and fail and not have it break the, the secure attachment. Third, the need to freely express our needs and emotions. To say, I feel this, I need this, I want that. We have a need for spontaneity and play. And finally, they say that we have a developmental need for structure, for limits, for rules, for schedules. That without structure, we feel way at risk. Terrified. And among those structures is where we learn then self-control, where we learn how to not let our negative emotions control us, but what to do with them. So those are the five needs that psychologists, with no faith in view, just, psych- just emotional development of humans in view, find. And what's crazy about this, the top of the list is secure emotional attachment. The very top, the, the, the deepest core emotional need of a human is secure emotional attachment. 
Maslow, another psychologist, he said that we have two basic camps of needs. Physical needs, social needs. We need physical safety. And as soon as our need to physically live is met, food, water, shelter, then love. This has to do with thriving. This has to do with surviving. They studied rats, little baby rats. Yeah, total ooh, gross. And when they separated little baby rats from their mommy, they cried. Yeah, they want, she's, you're, you're emotionally affected by baby rats. They cried, they whined, they felt sadness, and the pain centers of their brain were triggered, meaning they're physically in pain because of an emotional separation with their primary caregiver. It's called separation anxiety. It's common to living creatures that bond with their caregivers. Separation anxiety. The weird thing is, rats, rats, when they felt separation anxiety, sought different ways to cope with their feelings of fear and stress and pain. Overeating. They called them maladaptive behaviors. Unhealthy coping mechanisms to self-soothe from the fear and anxiety of being separated from mommy. Interesting. Rats! Crying out loud, rats! So think about this with me. This, this biological, it's, in other words, the need for secure emotional attachment goes so deep, it affects our biology. We feel physical pain when we lose the people we're emotionally connected to at that bonded deep level. We feel physical, physical pain from those kinds of losses. Many of us lost early in life significant people and we learned some negative coping strategies and some core fears that now when those fears are triggered we're not relating to the present situation we're opening a file a folder full of the past situation and we're feeling that past emotion for a present trigger and that's why we then live out these coping mechanisms that are destructive are you with me This passage is talking about core emotional needs, or I called it core emotional assurances. Because our deepest human need is secure emotional attachment with significant people, because of that, we the deepest wounds you can cause are also here at this at this place. The deepest wounds the human experiences have to do with rejection, abandonment and betrayal. Are you with me? Rejection, abandonment, and betrayal. And I know, I know some people are like, God is invisible. He don't talk, they think. You can't feel him. He's, you know, he's, he's an idea. 
Even if he's real, he's, I mean, you don't see him, you don't hear him, you don't feel him. How can you say you know him? You just sort of have beliefs about him, don't you? I was listening to a gentleman tell the story of how he grew up and learned emotionally to depend on God when his Christian parents got a divorce. And the trauma of that for him was so deep that he, he ended up talking to God as his best friend throughout the day. He was also not a cool kid at school, didn't have many friends, kind of sciency, kind of nerdly, kind of isolated and very insecure, didn't feel good at that. But God loved and accepted him as he is. And so God became his very best friend. Then later in life, way later, doctrinally, he concluded that he can't believe in science and God, and he lost his faith. And he said it's, 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 it's basically impossible to try to explain to his atheist friends what it felt like to lose God. He's like, you don't understand. They think, oh, I changed my belief system. They don't understand. It was worse than the death of my best friend. The deepest, the deepest person I've ever known who knows me better than anyone, who I, who I had, had talked with each day, throughout the day, and leaned on emotionally, and whose presence I thought I felt, and whose voice I thought I heard, I lost. Now, he came back to faith later, so through a series of crazy encounters. Crazy. Someone told him, you have, into, you have, you have shrunk down, down the idea of God to what can fit into your mind. You have a small bucket, and God's one of the ideas in the bucket. You need to get rid of the bucket and let God be bigger than that. And the guy started to speak over him identity and say, Jesus is waiting for you and inviting you, and he's never left you where you left him. You walked away from him because the ideas in your head didn't fit anymore. And the guy just spoke over him and offered him communion. And he stood there, he stood there, and he thought he heard Jesus. And he thought he felt Jesus. And he was like, are we really doing this again? And he was so emotional, he ran out to the beach. And he was crying. And he was way back from the waves. And he's like, Lord, this can't be. But if you're real, if you're really real, you need to give me a sign. And just then a, a wave came up that was like 40 feet further than all the other waves and just swept around him. And he thought he felt like the glory of God surround him. The next day he went back and he was bawling. Is this real? Is this really happening? He went back the next day, and sure enough, he found the spot where he could tell with the seaweed and the things that the wave brought up that it was the only wave, and it had gone like 40 or 50 feet up further than any of the other ones. And he's going, this doesn't work. Can, like, he came back to faith through encounters with Jesus. He left faith because of intellectual problems. Then when he came back to Jesus, he reintegrated. He kept science and faith together instead of trying to have one or the other win. That's not even my point. My point is this. Some people would say, you can't have your core emotional needs met by an invisible God. But Paul says, 
At my first defense, everyone abandoned me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. Not, hey, listen to the jet. I love when they do that. They fly so dang fast that when you try to find them by looking for the sound, they're way over here. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's the nice thing about living near Dover when they test their jets. Paul says, Paul says, not only did the Lord stand by me, he strengthened me. His presence, his assurance, I felt it. I sensed it. It met that need. He comforted me at that deep level when I was feeling rejected and pressured, when the pressure was on and my life felt at stake. He was with me in a way that was real and measurable and made the difference. And he always will be. When the people I love don't do what they ought, he does. When I don't do what I ought. There we go again. It's a jet. I love it. It's just exciting. You know, there's a whole genre of music designed out of this core emotional experience of rejection, loss, and betrayal. It's called the blues. Well, since my baby left. I found a new place to dwell. What hotel is that? Oh, Heartbreak Hotel. Okay. There's a whole genre of music about loss. Loss. Because it's so universal, we can relate to loss and pain and passion. And I love Buddy Guy. I love Buddy Guy. He walks up to the microphone and just digs into the whole thing. And there's a joy, by the way, there's a joy to be found in the togetherness we experience as we unveil our wound and find other people going, you are not alone. You are not alone. My friend Greg Neumeyer says that as a human enters a social environment, there's this, our conscious brain, thinking and forming words in our head, ideas, but there's a faster part of our brain that's emotionally intuiting. I forget how many times a second he said that our brain is scanning the social environment, asking, excuse me, asking a question, looking on the faces, the, the eye contact, the facial expressions, the body language, the social arrangement in the room, asking the question, Am I wanted here? Is anyone happy to see me? Does anybody desire my presence? Am I a gift or a burden? Now, those are not conscious thoughts for most of us, but they're subconscious things going on a few times a second, scanning our environment. Isn't this, do you walk in the cafeteria in in high school and, and you're looking around? Who are you trying to find? 
your friends. You ever go to a party and you're not sure if you know anybody and then you find somebody you actually know and you're like, whew. <sighs> because that, be, to be that person that's standing there alone, what does that word alone signify for us humans? Interesting. Yeah, lonely. Who said that? Lonely. Lonely. I had a friend and we were talking and he started to cry and he said, I am so lonely. Yeah, that, that'll... Ugh. This is a very popular, highly sociable, extroverted person. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his little book, Life Together, says that in a community of Christians, we might have all sorts of fellowship around our prayers and around our mission, around our belief in Jesus, around the good things we're doing for the world. In other words, he says we have fellowship as the righteous. And he says, but it's not until we start to confess our sins to each other that we have fellowship. Because until we confess our sins to each other, our fellowship isn't based on you really seeing me as I am and loving me in spite of how I really am. Fellowship on the basis of our common righteousness, he says, is a sham. But fellowship on the basis of our common status in Jesus as the broken and beloved fuses us together. Not a theoretical sin, your actual sins that you are committed, that you, I'm sorry, that you have committed. He says, he says, God is holy. So theoretically, we would say, oh, man, who wants to confess their sins to a holy God? Your brother and sister are broken like you are. So you would think it's going to be easy to confess your sins to each other. But what, he, what we find, most of us, is that it's way easier to confess your sins to God than to your brothers and sisters. And he says this, but if you only confess your sins to God, how do you know that the forgiveness that you say you are receiving isn't made up? Self-forgiveness, cheap grace, made up, a fiction. He says the way God, God in his wisdom and grace has set up grace to work to give you assurance that you are forgiven is through the body. Your brother, your sister, looking you in the face and, and seeing you as you are, seeing you as you are in your brokenness and saying, in the name of Jesus, you are forgiven. He says the Holy Spirit has granted a special assurance that you're in. Bonhoeffer says, he who is alone in his sin is utterly alone. And sin wants to separate us from the brethren. Sin wants to separate us from God and from the people who bear and carry and express the grace of God. So sin will take you away from church and away from openness. Sin will take you into hiding. It will t- it could, sin can take you into full-time ministry. So that you know me for what I hope I am instead of what I am. Confession of our sins to each other. Bonhoeffer says, 
is the answer to the deepest of human yearnings. Am I loved as I am? Bonhoeffer says, every psychologist, psychiatrist, expert doesn't know what humans are. He says this, the simplest of Christians understands the depth of the human heart infinitely better than the most brilliant worldly psychiatrist. Because we understand, the Christian understands, that our deepest need is to be seen, known, loved, and forgiven by the cross of Jesus. And Bonhoeffer says, only the person who lives under the cross of Jesus is fit to hear someone else's confession of sin. Because the one who has seen their own sin nail Jesus to the cross is done thinking, oh my word, get away from me to anyone else's sin. The one who lives before the cross of Jesus understands sin and human nature, forgiveness and grace more than the most brilliant mind. Right? Because the psychiatrist can only view you as sick. The Christian knows you as broken in need of love and forgiveness, in need of mercy and repentance. The the Christian sees you as longing for fellowship with God and needing to hear the word of absolution and acceptance so that this core emotional need you and I have at the depth of our being for secure emotional attachment with our true parent, with our true father, can be met. Met in such a way that makes a difference in life that strengthens us in our time of need, that arms us to live well instead of letting our brokenness, our coping strategies, and our fear of rejection, and oh no, it's happening again, drive us into destructive patterns that take our life away from us and erode our love. Notice like the two, I think the two probably the most famous psalms would be, what's the most famous psalm? That's the most famous hymn. Absolutely, that's the most famous hymn. Psalm 23. Look at what Psalm 23 is about, you guys. The Lord is my... I shall never be in need. He leads me. He feeds me. He restores my soul. He, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to fear evil. Because why? He's with me. What can I be confident as long as I live? The goodness and mercy of the Lord will follow me all the days of my life. And what? I will dwell in the house of the Lord. The whole psalm is about the core emotional need for secure attachment. He's with me. He's for me. He's never leaving me. He's, he's, his, his presence with me makes all the difference. Look at Psalm 139. Same thing. You know me. You knit me together in in my mother's womb. Your thoughts about me outnumber the grains of sand on the seashore. If I went to hell, you'd be there. If I climbed the highest mountain, you'd be there. If I left our solar system, you'd be there. There's nowhere I can flee from your presence. When I awake, you're with me. You know me. 
the secure emotion, the deepest core human need that we have for secure emotional attachment. These people of faith, David, Paul, you could just go on and on. Moses, Joshua, one of my favorites. Joshua's taking on a leadership role and he's followed the greatest leader Israel has ever had. And he's thinking, who am I? And the Lord says, that doesn't matter. That's the wrong question. The question is, who am I? No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Forsake is betrayal language. I will never betray you. I will never abandon you. Remember what Jesus said? I'm going to leave so I can go to the Father, but don't think I'm leaving and abandoning you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I hope everyone's okay over here. <laughs> I'm afraid to look. Can you see, can you see throughout the scripture? They, they get it. They understand. Yes, this is what humans were designed to have. Yep. Hebrews 13, keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Nothing wrong with money. But money can't give you the security you most need. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? That sounds like this invisible God makes a practical, tangible, emotional difference to me. Yeah, but Tim, I don't feel the Lord. You can. Yeah, but Tim, I don't hear the Lord. His sheep hear him. Yeah, but Tim, he's invisible. I see him ever beside me, says David. I saw the Lord ever at my side. I will not be shaken. Well, what eyes did he use to see that? Friends, hear the word. I am with you. I am with you. John 16, 32. A time is coming and in fact has come when all of you will be scattered each to your own home and you will all leave me alone. Words of red, Jesus. Start again. A time is coming and in fact has now come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will all leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. Amen. The architect of the faith walked in this truth. The followers of that architect, we walk in this truth. Yet I am not alone. Can you say that with me? I am not alone. 
my Father is with me. We used to sing a little song back in college that said, I am not alone. No, I, I screwed the words up. Let me try it again. Though I feel alone, I am never alone. That's important to know. Just because you feel it doesn't mean it is that. This becomes exceptionally important to know now so that when the hard times come, your heart knows the way home. Your heart knows the way home. Blessed are those who know the way home to Zion. When they walk through the valley of Baca or weeping, they will make it a spring. Psalm 84. Blessed are those in whose hearts are the ways home to Zion. That's a fascinating phrase. I know it by heart. You know how to get to your house without thinking. And there's a way of relating so familiarly, so regularly with God that your heart knows how to access his presence instantly. And I want to say effortlessly, out of habit, like Science Mike did when he was a kid on the playground in school when he was crying over his parents' divorce in his bedroom so that God became his best friend. There's a way. Um, (laughs) I like the band The Pretenders. And Chrissy Hind, my favorite Pretenders song is called I'll Stand By You. I was singing it on the way over here. I'll stand by you, won't let nobody hurt you, I'll stand by you. Isn't she like 72 years old now? She's still crushing it. You hear them live and it's like, it sounds like she's auto-tuned and she's not. That, that, That woman still got it. She still got it. Take me into your darkest hour and I'll never desert you, I'll stand by you. Don't be afraid to cry. Did you notice she modulated to a different key? Who wrote this? Chrissy, did you write these chord changes? Anyway, she, she hits on the idea of, and even if you're wrong, I'll stand by you. Not, I'll stand by you as long as you do what I like. Right? Not sort of standard American worldly uh, romance. As long as you make me feel a certain way, I'll love you. No, it's the, the, it's the core emotional need. I need somebody who can love me in the broken thing that I don't like that I am. Amen. I like parts of me, but there's other parts of me I don't like. And God knows all that stuff and loves me. He's committed to me. Are there humans like that too? And Chrissy stands up and says, I'm going to write a top 100 single. It's going to be amazing. And I'm going to say grace, loyalty, commitment, faithfulness. And also her voice is good too. The video that I saw, she had like eyeliner all over her face like she had been crying. And I was like, she might have been actually crying. I don't know if that was a rock and roll gig. So that's what I was singing on the way over here. And now maybe you'll be singing that on the way home. No? You don't even like the pretenders? Pretenders? 
The Lulls don't like, oh, you don't know the Pretenders. All right. So, okay, let's see. Let me give you some country music that you might. Let me tell you a secret about a father's love. That one, that one. That's the same message, but now it's a secret that my daddy said was just between us. He said fathers don't just love their children every now and then. It's a love without end. Amen. Did you think you were going to get the pretenders and some country music in here? I didn't. I didn't know that was going to happen. All right, let's finish this message. God is not some sort of afterlife, invisible Santa Claus, or just some idea. God is the person who is most fully capable of meeting our deepest emotional needs. He's the most qualified and able. Of meeting our need for love, for comfort, for identity, for purpose, for support. We're meant to find our our secure emotional attachment in Him. And then here's the thing, guys. Our life direction tends to be more influenced by our deep emotional attachments than anything else. You find somebody who radically changes their belief system, it's often because something changed at the emotional attachment level. Someone they are emotionally attached to is headed that direction, so now they are too. It's interesting, and I used to kind of hear, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, as you better keep my commandments to show me you love me. Now I think... If we are deeply emotionally attached to God, it will become our natural condition to walk in the path, gravitate towards obedience. Going back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he says, isn't part of the reason that so many of us keep flopping around in the same sins over and over is not the reason that the grace we are experiencing is the cheap, made-up grace we're offering ourselves because we're not deeply connected to this vulnerability in the presence of the believing community. That's an interesting idea. All right, I'm done. I am with you.